Dear Lord, thanks so much for your goodness and thanks for your word, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And Lord, we just, uh, we do want to hear from you this morning, Lord. So please guide us and lead us. Please speak to us by your Holy Spirit and just have your way with us, Lord. Thanks for being our God. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 23. Ezekiel 23. Let me preface by saying there are some chapters in the Bible that are just downright, I don't know what the word is, graphic might be a word, uh, difficult might be a word, uh, uh, anyway, this is those kind of words, uh, this chapter today. And so what I wanted to do is I'm, as I was praying about reading through this and talking about it a little bit, um, I want us to look at this. We could read this chapter just for what it's worth. And, and you may have heard me say before, I always like to read it. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? Okay, well, if you just read it like, what does it say? It's kind of a weird parable thing, if you just stop there. What does it mean could mean like, wow, those Jews back in that day were a mess. Okay, but then I think we have to really today take our minds to what does it mean to me? Because... Uh, it's a metaphor, it's a parable about two sisters that represent two harlots, okay? Now, most of us don't struggle with idolatry and harlotry and some of that kind of stuff, right? But um, I think there are some principles that as we say, what does it mean to me? I want us to see the principles, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to highlight some take-home points as we read through this today that I think apply to us necess- uh, in, our, in our day and age. Is that fair? That's fair. By the way, uh, earlier when I said there's no secret handshake, Mike Turner did tell me there is a secret um, like code word, and that is, is that fair? Right? So now you all know the code word, is that fair? I just said it. You answered, yes, it's fair. By the way, the right answer is, yes, that's fair. There's only one right answer to that question. So um, chapter 23, verse 1. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. And so he's going to introduce this. He's going to give us uh, a metaphor, a parable of these two women. And keep in mind, God is speaking to Ezekiel uh, during the time uh, that Ezekiel is a captive in Babylon and the, uh, all the rest of the people back in Jerusalem are about to be in the, next, in the near future, as of the time of Ezekiel's writing, in the near future they're going to be uh, completely conquered by the Babylonians and judged and all of that. So God is basically describing um, why the judgment is coming. He goes on, verse 3. They committed harlotry in Egypt. They committed harlotry in their youth. Their breasts were there embraced. Their virgin bosom was there pressed. Their names Ahola the elder, 
and Aholabah, her sister. They were mine. And they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Samaria is Aholah, and Jerusalem is Aholabah. Right? So, everybody got the idea? We're talking about Aholah and Aholabah, right? That's why I, I, now you understand why I said we got to come up with, like, what does it mean to me, right? Aholah, that doesn't mean much to me. Well, Aholah means uh, her own tent. The name Aholah means her own tent. The name Aholabah means my tent is in her. Now, interestingly, again, uh, just to kind of bring us all up to speed, we're talking about the nation of Israel prior to, you know, in the days of their kings. Uh, you may recall there was King David. He was an awesome king. There was King Solomon. He was king. And then King Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. During the time of Rehoboam, the nation was divided. And the nation was divided into what we call the northern kingdom of Israel. And its capital was the city of Samaria. And so when he says, Aholah is Samaria, or Samaria is Aholah, he's talking about Samaria as the capital city, as a representation, as a picture of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's, that had been the ten tribes, the, the ten northern tribes, or the, or the ten descendants of Jacob, ten branches of the descendants of Jacob. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. Its capital was, anybody want to guess? Jerusalem. And so when he says, Aholabah is Jerusalem, we're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. So keep in mind, after the time of, of Solomon, we're dealing with two, basically two kingdoms. We're talking about the, the, the nation of Israel, sometimes we call it collectively, but it's really the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Collectively, they are the Jewish people, the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of them are in the north, Israel. Two of them are in the south, Judah. Israel's capital is Samaria. Judah's capital is Jerusalem. All right? So we're going to talk about Israel, the northern kingdom. That's Aholah. Now, interestingly, the word Aholah means her, her own tent. Now, maybe more history than you care to know, but when the kingdom was divided, part of the reason the kingdom was divided was the northern kingdom was kind of like, we just want to do our own thing. You know, we don't want to have to go all the way to the king of the northern kingdom. First king was named Jeroboam. He said, you know, I don't want our people to have to go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship. Can't we just do it our way? So what he did is he put up uh, two temples or two false altars, one in Bethel, one in Dan, which was way up north, and said, we'll just do it our way, right? Her own tent, like her own way of doing things, her own faith. You know, we can, and this happens not uncommonly throughout history, we can sort of define our own religion and call it whatever we want. We could even call it Christianity if we want, right? And, you know, I was talking to a guy yesterday. He said, you know, so-and-so, he's talking about his daughter. He says, you know, she believes, but she doesn't believe the same way I do. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> right? It means nothing. And so we can, we can say, you know, we have a belief or we can have, uh, you know, a religious 
sort of set of things in our head, and we can call them Christianity, but let me just say this. If they're not consistent with the written Word of God that's been inspired by Him, then we got no business calling it Christianity. Right? If it looks like a rat, smells like a rat, and tastes like a rat, it's a rat. Right? It's not something else. And so, um, so the northern kingdom of Israel, they just did their own thing. And so he calls it her own tent. The southern kingdom of Judah, he calls Aholabah, which means my tent is in her. Now here's what's interesting. This is a picture of God's grace, even in the midst of this judgment parable. My tent, my tent, whose tent? God's tent is in her, right? And the tent, if you kind of break down the, the, the wording, tent is also maybe translated tabernacle. Tabernacle is where the Jewish people came to worship God. My worship, God would say, even though those people are rebellious, my worship remains there. What was gonna, what's going to happen in the southern kingdom of Judah? They're going to be conquered. They're going to be taken off to Babylon. But what's going to happen after 70 years? They're going to come back to Jerusalem. They're going to reestablish. And the Messiah, because really the purpose of the Old Testament is to point us to the Messiah and learn the lessons along the way. That's really, that's Old Testament 101, right? And so God says, my tent is in her. My Messiah, my messianic line descended from King David. That remains in that southern kingdom. And so even in these two words, Aholah and Aholabah, we see a picture of God's grace. Now, both of these sisters committed harlotry all the way back even in Egypt. This nation was birthed in Egypt. You may recall, again, more history than you want, Jacob and his 12 sons went down to Egypt because Joseph was there uh, during the time of famine. And so uh, roughly 70 people, that, you know, basically a big multi-generational family, which you might think 70 people is crazy, but, you know, you've got two or three generations of, you know, Jacob and his, and his 12 sons, you're going to have a 70 people pretty quick, right? So they go down to Egypt, they hang out, and then next thing you know, we're talking two to three million of them. Now they've grown from a family to a nation. And so now we talk, call it collectively the nation of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel by God, and so now we call it the nation of Israel, okay? And so they were birthed back in Egypt. Now, interestingly, he says, Aholah is the elder and Aholabah is her sister, like her younger sister. Well, they were both birthed at the same time, right? And in the time of Rehoboam, as I said, the nation was divided. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. That happened at the same time. But essentially, the idea here is the northern kingdom is older because they're going to die first. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom was finally conquered by the Babylonians in 605, I'm sorry, in 586 B.C., roughly 140 years later. And so that's important that we see. The northern kingdom's gone after, after, in 722. The southern kingdom gets to see that, and then they finally go off 150 years later. Fair enough? Is that fair? Yes, yeah. We'll teach you the code word later. Verse 5, Ahola, that's the northern kingdom of Israel and Samaria's capital, 
Ahola played the harlot, even though she was mine. She lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians. Now this is interesting. So we see here this metaphor of the harlot. Is, is in a sense, you might think of it, you probably don't remember this, uh, but a few weeks ago we read Ezekiel chapter 16, right? Everybody remember chapter 16? That's what I thought, so I'll review. So chapter 16 was a story about, you, you may recall, you know, you were there and you were basically a, a, a baby that had been abandoned and I, and God gives us this picture of I rescued you and I basically nurtured you until you became a beautiful woman and then, you know, I married you as a nation and, and all of that and then you played the harlot, right? Remember that story? Yeah. Right? Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Very much. So uh, you played the harlot, right? And so this is sort of a continuation of that. But I want to make a couple distinctions. If you go back and look at chapter, chapter 16, which we won't do in the interest of time, chapter 16 speaks of their adultery with idols, right? God wanted to be worshipped. What's the very first of the Ten Commandments? Thou shall have what? No other gods before me. The Jewish people were immersed in idolatry. And that was really the deal breaker with God, if you will. And uh, although God is faithful and he's sovereign and doesn't forsake his people and all of that, the, the worship of idols was, was, God had to judge that. And so chapter 16 talks about the harlotry that they played in a sense in their worship of idols. Chapter 23 that we're talking about now speaks of adultery with other nations, other nations, other peoples. And so I think there's some lessons that we can glean from that. And so both of these are manifestations of not appreciating God, right? The, the northern kingdom of Israel, they played the harlot with the Assyrians, right? And uh, so they lusted after the Assyrians. Now, if you're astute, who did I say conquered the northern kingdom of Israel? The Assyrians. They conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They destroyed them. They tortured them. They sent them off into captivity. They spread them out all over the, all over the, the known world at that time and dispersed them. But wait a minute. Ahola, Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, played the harlot even though she was mine. She lusted after her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians. Catch this. This is take-home point number one, okay? I told you we're going to do what does it mean to me. Take-home point number one. The thing that you lust after is the thing that will destroy you. Yeah. The thing that you lust after, i.e., the thing that you really think you need for satisfaction in this life, apart from God, is the very thing that will destroy you. It's one of the greatest paradoxes in history. It's one of the greatest paradoxes in the human condition. That thing that we think we've got to have. Now, it may not be harlotry, right? It may be a relationship. It may be a possession. It may be an accomplishment. It may be some sort of ambition. But that thing that we think we've got to have, and, and, and 
make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. None of us are exempt from this temptation. None of us are exempt from this temptation. There's that thing that, and you could probably, if I asked for, if we just went one by one through the room, I could probably say, what's your thing? And I bet, I bet a good number of us could say, well, it's this. That one thing that would, like, all of a sudden make life perfect. You've heard me say before, back in the days, when if I'm, this is for the benefit of new people, back in the day, my life was incomplete. It needed a tractor. And there was an impediment to my completion of my life. I didn't have one. And furthermore, well, anyway, I won't go there, right? But I didn't have one. And so we'd drive down the road. I, I remember Tracy and I would drive down the road, right? You drive down a country road. There's a house. And you know what's in the driveway of that house? I didn't care if there was a car there, a motorhome, a boat, an RV. There's a tractor there. Tracy would say, that guy's got a perfect, wa- a perfect life. I started to say perfect wife. <laughs> okay. That guy's got a perfect life. And I would say, yeah, doesn't he though? He's got a perfect life. He's got a tractor with a loader, hydrostat transmission, right? Whole bit. I thought life would be perfect. Now, thankfully, that tractor hasn't destroyed me. I did get it, and it didn't destroy me yet, but maybe because God reset my priorities. But in terms of idolatry, please catch this. Very often, that thing that we think will bring satisfaction, if we allow it to be an idol in our life, guaranteed is the thing that will destroy us. It's, it's fascinating to me. I, 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 it's almost like my brain has to pause and digest this, that she lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians. Think about that. The northern kingdom. Oh, if I could only, if I could only have a relationship with the Assyrians. What? Oh, you're going to have a relationship with them, all right. They're going to stick hooks in your noses and drag you off to Assyria. They're going to torture you. They're going to skin you alive. Oh, you'll have a relationship with them. See that? That's take-home message number one. The thing you lust after is the thing that will destroy you. Verse 6. These Assyrians, they were clothed in purple. Purple was a sign of wealth. They're clothed in purple. Captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Well, they had good reason to lust after the Assyrians. They were desirable. That thing you want is desirable. God's not saying it's not. It's desirable. Thus, she committed her harlotry with them, all of them choice men of Assyria. And with all for whom she lusted, with all her idols, she defiled herself. And so what happened? The Assyrians just happened to bring their idols with them. So when she lusted after the Assyrians, she was also vulnerable to their idols because God was no longer her protection. God was no longer her protection. And so when she lusts after the Assyrians, 
oh, well, whatever. It doesn't matter that she also has her idols. And so what happened? She brings her idols in with her and all the neighbors uh, with all their idols. Next thing you know, they become the idols of the Jewish people. And next thing you know, God has to bring judgment. It's a sad story, but it's real. It's very real. Verse 8, she's never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt. This, is, this goes all the way back to her, her beginnings. For in her youth, they had lain with her, pressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their immorality upon her. So really, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't repent from their history. You know, sometimes, have you ever noticed that history sometimes repeats itself, even ugly history? You ever notice that? You ever notice that we tend to sometimes even generationally, right? The same thing seems to happen, right? Abraham goes down to Egypt and he tells his wife, hey, they're going to think you're, they're going to see that you're beautiful. They're going to try to take you into their harem. Let's just say you're my sister, right? Turns out to be a stupid idea. Uh, Abraham gets rebuked for it by, by the king of Egypt, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward a few decades, Isaac goes to Egypt. Guess what he does? He says, hey, they're going to say you're beautiful. Let's say you're my sister. Right? Now you and I sit here and think, wow, that's stupid. Right? Because we're looking at it from the outside. Look at it from the inside, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. So these guys didn't do, didn't, didn't, didn't reshape their history. Can I tell you this? We have the capacity. We have the free will. We have the Holy Spirit who empowers us to reshape whatever history needs to be reshaped in our DNA. Don't be a victim of your history, even your generational history, even your personal history. Don't be a victim of that. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day that God, by His Holy Spirit, can help us overcome whatever that thing is that we need to overcome. That thing that's a stronghold. That thing that has held us down and kept us from living a victorious Christian life for a long time, perhaps. That's available to us today. So, these guys, they kept doing the same thing they did all the way back in Egypt. Verse 9, Therefore, you know, God always has a therefore. Therefore, I've delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians for whom she lusted. They uncovered her nakedness, took away her sons and daughters, and slew her with the sword. She became a byword among them, for they had executed judgment on her. And so, what happened? God therefore them, right? You want, the, you want the Assyrians? You can have the Assyrians. But it's not going to be as awesome as you think it will be. Matter of fact, they're going to torture you. They're going to take your sons and daughters. They're going to slay you with a sword. And it's going to be ugly. Right? You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a thing that God often does. And that is, you know, uh, God respects sometimes, in a sort of a way, our insistence on doing our own thing. Sometimes if we insist on going, you know, if God says zig, and I say, no, I want to zag, God will say, I need you to zig. God's word says zig. Well, no, my situation is different. I need to zag. I'm unique. 
I need to zag. There'll be this sort of tension, right? Like any relationship, any loving relationship, right? And sooner or later, if I insist on going this way, guess what God's going to do? Let me go. Let me go that way. Often for my own benefit. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe. We read it last Wednesday. There was a guy in the church who had a horribly immoral relationship. And God, t- and, and God through the Apostle Paul, tells the church, you know what you need to do? You need to turn that guy loose from the church. Why? For the destruction of his flesh. Right? Because he needs to know that the Assyrians are rotten to the core. And the only way he's going to know that is if you just turn him loose to the Assyrians. You want to love the Assyrians? Have at it. And it's not, it's not hard. It's for the purpose of restoration. What do we see in 2 Corinthians? We see that guy restored. Right? And so it's not because God enjoys watching people suffer. It's all for restoration. Everything God does is for restoration. It's because of love. But sometimes God will let us have that thing that we insist on so we can see that it's not quite what it was cracked up to be. And certainly that was the case of the Assyrians. Verse 11. Now, although her sister Aholibah, again, that's Jerusalem, Judah, the southern kingdom. Although her her sister Aholibah saw this, she became more corrupt in her lust than she, and in her harlotry, more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. So Judah saw the downfall of of Israel and the reasons for it, but she didn't learn from from their history. Again, you recall I said the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom saw that firsthand. They got a firsthand glimpse of that. And they failed to heed the warnings. They continued down the same path of idolatry as the northern kingdom neighbors did. What's take-home point number two? Human beings very often fail to learn from history. And I think if I could give us a sub-point to point number two, the reason we fail to learn from history is we think our situation is unique. Well, I'm different. Or my situation is different. And so, therefore, the rules that apply, the, rule, the laws of nature, if you will, that apply to the Assyrians don't apply to me. Or that apply to the northern kingdom of Israel don't apply to me. But there's a principle here. We know it in the New Testament as a principle of sowing and reaping. It's like the law of gravity, right? I don't care who you are. If you jump off a building, the law of gravity is going to prevail no matter what your situation. Right? You might be a little different than the last guy that jumped. You might have different relationships. You might have a different circumstance. But the reality is the law of gravity is the law of gravity. The law of sowing and reaping is the law of sowing and reaping. And that is, God says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. If he sows to the flesh, he's going to reap what? Corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he'll reap everlasting life. There are so many times that we as believers will sow to the flesh and think, I know that northern kingdom of Israel 
reaps corruption when they sow to the flesh. But I think somehow I can sow to the flesh and reap something other than corruption because my situation is different. And that's why we don't learn from history. Because we think we're special. We think we're unique. We think our situation is just a little... Well, you don't understand my situation. If you ever find yourself reading the Scripture and telling the Holy Spirit, you know the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart. If you ever find yourself speaking to the Holy Spirit or speaking to somebody who's given you counsel or to speak to the Word, and you say, yeah, but my situation is different, be careful. That's a red flag. That's a big red flag. Don't say, yeah, but my situation's different. Now, so, the southern kingdom of Judah, there were some good kings in Judah. There were some brief times of reform, but God says they were more corrupt than the northern sister Israel. And probably it's because they saw that lesson from history and failed to heed the lesson. Verse 12. She lusted for the neighboring Assyrians. Captains and rulers clothed most gorgeously. Horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. Right? So, yeah, let's work through this scenario a little bit. The northern kingdom of Israel lusts after the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians come and conquer them in 722 B.C. We watch that go down, and so um, we're going to think, I think it was because of something about that northern kingdom that the Assyrians kind of reacted negatively to them. I think we can lust after them, and, our, and it'll turn out different for us. What do we call that? Stupid. We call it stupid, right? Sin makes you stupid. Straight up. Judah fell for the same Assyrians that the Israel happened to fall to. Now, based on the history I've told you so far, did Judah fall to the Assyrians? The southern kingdom of Judah, did they fall to the Assyrians? No. Who are they going to fall to? The Babylonians. But, can I remind you, did they almost fall to the Assyrians? Yes. This story is mentioned almost verbatim three separate times in Scripture. 2 Kings 18 and 19, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 36 and 37. Let's review. During the reign of godly king Hezekiah, the Assyrians, and this is uh, shortly after the northern kingdom was conquered. So the northern kingdom was conquered in 722. Shortly after that, the southern kingdom of Judah, Ezekiel says, was lusting after the neighboring Assyrians. And Assyria actually came in and destroyed and conquered almost all of Judah except for Jerusalem, the last stronghold. Remember the story? They come in, and they are wiping out the southern kingdom of Judah, all but Jerusalem. And you know the story. The story was, they come in. Thankfully, Hezekiah at the time was a godly king. Godly, uh, godly king Hezekiah tells, the people, tells the, his people on the wall of the city, 
of Jerusalem there, don't answer those people. Just ignore them, right? Those people that are telling you they're going to eat you for lunch, just ignore them. Hezekiah goes to Isaiah. They pray. They pray. They look to God for their solution, right? And then one day, I don't know how many days this went on, one day they decide they go out and they look out over the, over the wall. What do they see? 200, if I remember the numbers right, 285,000 dead Assyrian soldiers killed by the, an angel of the Lord. 285,000 dead Assyrian soldiers. So, you're Hezekiah, you say, praise the Lord, right? You're Isaiah, you say, praise the Lord. You're all the people in the city that saw that, you say, whoa, praise the Lord. But let's back up and learn from that for a second. What do we see? They almost conquered everything. They had conquered everything but Jerusalem, right? Let's take home point number three. God is faithful to warn his children, either by his word or by his spirit or, his circum or by circumstances. Our job is to recognize when he does that. I believe God is faithful to warn us when we start to head the wrong direction. It may be by something you hear from this place. It may be by something you see or something you read or a book you read or a, or a friend that speaks to your heart or that or that still small voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Maybe something. But I believe God is faithful to warn His children. So you see what's happened so far? Number one, they're lusting after the thing that's going to destroy them. We, they saw that happen in the northern kingdom. Number two, they failed to learn the lesson from the northern kingdom. Number three, God warns them by bringing the Assyrians to their doorstep and then killing them. And at the end of Hezekiah's life, God even warned that, that the Babylonians would one day come and conquer the southern kingdom. God is very faithful to warn his children. Verse 13, then I saw that she was defiled. Both took the same way. But she increased her harlotry. She looked at men portrayed on the wall, images of the Chaldeans portrayed in Vermilion. Chaldeans is a, is a name for the Babylonian people. So now we're transitioning to the Babylonians girded with belts around their waists, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like captains in the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity. As soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And so what do we see? She lusts after the Babylonians just like she did the Assyrians. Take home point number four. Apart from repentance, idolatry leads to more idolatry. Apart from repentance, if God, if God somehow shows us, either by watching the northern kingdom get taken out, or by watching the Assyrians get killed at our doorsteps, or by His word, or however He does it, if God shows us that we are guilty of going down the wrong road. We have two choices. Repent or go farther down the wrong road. Repent or go farther down the wrong road. What do these guys do? 
They lusted after the Assyrians. Then God killed the Assyrians. <laughs> right? So what do they then do? They lust after the Babylonians. Right? Even though God had warned Hezekiah that the Babylonians were going to be the ones that were going to come and finally bring destruction. Apart from repentance, idolatry simply leads to more idolatry. That tractor you like, guess what? It's kind of old and tired now, right? That boat you like, that relationship you, you crave, that achievement that you crave, that hope, ambition, whatever it is, once you get that, guess what? You know what? There's a, bitter, there's, a, there's a bigger achievement to be had. There's a bigger, faster, there's a faster car to be driven, right? If we go at it from an idolatry standpoint, if we look at it like we're lusting after it, sooner or later we'll realize how insatiable we really are. We, as a general rule, as human beings, don't get satisfied with anything other than God. Verse 17. Then the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their immorality. So she was defiled by them and alienated herself from them. She revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness. Then I alienated myself from her as I had alienated as I had alienated myself from her sister. So as soon as Judah was defiled by Babylon, she was alienated from them. So when we live outside of biblical principles, it brings disappointment, heartache, disillusionment, alienation. So you see this? There's a twofold consequence here. Judah lusts after the Babylonians, okay? She gets what she thinks she wanted from the Babylonians, right? What did that produce? Did that cement her love for the Babylonians and their love for her? No. It brought alienation, not only from the Babylonians, but also from God. There's a story, an equally ugly story, honestly, uh, in 2 Samuel. David's, David had a son named Amnon. Some of you know the story. Amnon lusted terribly after his half-sister. So much so, he couldn't think of anything else. He was obsessed. He was obsessed with it. Until one day, he comes up with this crafty scheme, and he, and he, he violates her. And here's what the, word, here's what the Scripture says. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. So he, violate, he, he lusts after her. He thinks, oh man, I got to have her, I got to have her, I got to have her, I got to have her. He's obsessed. He violates her. He says, then he hated her exceedingly so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. 
the, Ju- the people of Judah, they lust after the Babylonians. They want to have fellowship with the Babylonians. They want to commit harlotry with the Babylonians. They want to embrace the idols of the Babylonians. And guess what? Then they're alienated from the Babylonians and, worse yet, alienated from God. It's a, it's a twofold consequence that we see. If you want to have super unhealthy, alienated, awkward relationships with other human beings, deal with them in unbiblical means. Does that make sense? If you have a relationship, I I tell this to people all the time, of all ages. People will ask me, I mean, it's complicated to even get into the scenarios. People ask me all the time about relationships because I'm an expert. No, it just comes up. I'm not an expert. Let the record stand. I am not an expert on relationships. But... I can often see where the conversation's going. People want to justify what they know to be an unbiblical relationship. And I'll ask them, do you want God to bless that relationship or not? If you want God to not bless the relationship, if you want to feel like you're fighting against God, do it immorally. If you want God to bless the relationship, do it right. Period. And let me tell you this. God is interested in human relationships. And I'm not talking about just, you know, physical or anything like that. I'm talking about family dynamics. I'm talking about the whole shebang. I'm talking about work environment. All of it. I have seen over the years, God can supernaturally fix a broken relationship just like that. I've experienced it. I've experienced it on many, on, on, honestly, on many different levels. And I've also seen, and, and honestly, I've seen it when it seemed impossible. And there's something supernatural about God's input into human relationships. I don't care if it's a friendship. I don't care if it's a sibling. I don't care if it's a parent-child. I don't care if it's extended family. I don't care if it's a romantic relationship. God, now, does that mean if I live biblically, then everybody's going to love me? Not necessarily. <laughs> We're all human, right? There's a human element here. But there's also a spiritual element. So these Chaldeans, you deal with them immorally, you fail to learn the lessons God gives you, and guess what? You're going to get baggage. So they were alienated from them as well as from God, and that's how it often works out. Yet she multiplied her harlotry in calling to remembrance the days of her youth, away back in Egypt when everything was great, when we were slaves. 
when she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt, for she lusted for her paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you called to remembrance the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians pressed your bosom because of your youthful breasts. So just bad to worse. Therefore, verse 22, Aholabah, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, thus says the Lord your God, behold, I will stir up your lovers against you. See this? Does God have input in relationships? Yes, he does. God says, behold, Aholabah, I'm going to stir up your lovers against you. And so just like God can bless a relationship, God can stir up a relationship. Let me just say this. You don't want God to stir up people against you. He says, I will stir up your lovers against you for, from whom you have alienated yourself. And I'll bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod, Shoah, Koah, all the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, governors and rulers, captains and men of renown, all of them riding on horses, and they shall come against you with chariots, wagons, and war horses, with a horde of people. They shall array against you buckler, shield, and helmet all around. I will delegate judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. And so all these people, all these areas, the Assyrians even with them, because the Assyrians by this time had been conquered by the Babylonians, and God's going to bring the Babylonians and everybody else with them. That's the consequence that they're facing. So God can stir up the Babylonians against the people of Judah. God can influence human relationships. He can stir them up and he can bless them. Can I tell you this? You want God to bless your relationships. You want God to bless them. So the same fate that happened to Samaria is going to happen to Jerusalem. And it turns out that Jerusalem was not exempt from the lessons of Samaria. The same destiny came to him. I will set, verse 25, I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you. They shall remove your nose and your ears and your remnant that shall fall by the sword, and they shall take your sons and your daughters and your remnant shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewelry. Thus I will make you cease your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt so that you will not lift your eyes to them nor remember Egypt anymore. And so God's going to deal with their, with their sin. God's going to deal with their harlotry. God's going to deal with their lewdness. How? By bringing destruction, right? You tend to not, I mean, if... if if they're dead, they're not going to continue practicing harlotry, right? If they're prisoners, they're not necessarily going to be continuing in the same way they did. And so sometimes punishment, sometimes, sometimes judgment is God's final way of, of dealing with sin. It's, it's really how he puts an end to sin. And so he gives us all these warnings. He gives us the lessons of history. He gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit. But sometimes... Destruction is what comes. And sometimes those idols that we want are taken from us. Verse 28. For thus says the Lord God, Surely I will deliver you into the hand of those you hate, into the hand of those from whom you have alienated yourself. They will deal hatefully with you, take away all you have worked for, and leave you naked and bare. 
The nakedness of your harlotry shall be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotry. I will do these things to you because you have gone as a harlot after the Gentiles, because you have become defiled by their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will put her cup in your hand. And so God reminds them just the reasons they're being judged, and God is just. God is just. Can I say this in the midst of saying God is just? God is fully gracious. And God is fully merciful. And we can read a chapter like this and we can say, man, there's no way out. I'm a sinner. It's good if we recognize we're a sinner. But there is a way out. His name is Jesus. Ephesians tells us, by grace you've been saved, not of works. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. We are saved by grace. Does our sin deserve judgment? Absolutely. Does our sin deserve judgment just like these people? Well, we say, well, I mean, if we're honest, we say, am I that bad? <laughs> yeah, I'm a sinner, but not like a sinner, right? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Yes, that bad. And we can look around in the room, or we can look around in, in the world, and we can have this tendency to say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. That's the same mentality that says my situation is different. Because we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and His name is Jesus. These verses, and the reason we read these verses, and the reason these verses apply to us, is that they help, if we learn these warnings and heed these warnings, it can save us and spare us from a lot of baggage along the way of God saving us. Does that make sense? It's not like I'm saying, hey, you need to learn from the lessons of history so that you can get saved. No, you need to first of all recognize you're a sinner. We all need to recognize that we're sinners. We're saved by grace. And in this journey that we call life, there's a lot of landmines that we could avoid. And there's a lot of blessing that we could enjoy. And God wants us to enjoy the blessings of this life along the way. And God wants us to avoid the landmines along the way. But the landmines are there, and they're real. And God warns us and tells us where there are, and He says, don't step on the mines. And He makes it very clear to us. But sometimes there's something in human nature that says, curious if that thing really has the consequence God said it would. And very often, yes, it does. Does that mean we're not saved? No, not at all. It means we just got wounded worse than we needed to. And so these are the lessons that he's giving us along the way. Verse 32, thus says the Lord God, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much. You will, you will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breasts, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. So the, the idea of the cup, uh, the cup is sort of a picture of, of punishment, of judgment uh, throughout the Scripture. You know, you recall, uh, you know, Jesus said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And so God emphasizes here again the lessons of history. You're going to drink the same cup that your sister Samaria drank. Verse 35. This might be, in my mind, the most important take-home lesson of the day. Therefore, thus says the Lord, 
Because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness and your harlotry. Take home point number five, if you're writing these down. It all starts with forgetting the Lord. Now why is that important? It's important, for the, for, it's important because of this. We can look at this and we could say, those people were a mess. We're talking about harlotry. That's ugly. We're talking about idol worship. That's ugly. We're talking about doing it for hundreds of years, all the way back to the nation of, of when they were in Egypt, the birth of the nation. We're talking about watching our fellow countrymen go through consequence of that and failing to learn the lesson. We're talking about being warned as the Assyrians have us surrounded and failing to learn the lesson. We're talking about bad, 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 deplorable sin, right? I mean, it's about as bad as it gets. And so there's a tendency for us to say, that was them and I'm me. I mean, I don't really have any sin to struggle with except my Irish temper, right? I'm not a harlot. I just got an Irish temper, right? And we think there's some kind of distinction. But here's what I want us to see. It all starts with forgetting the Lord. Because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty. Therefore you shall bear the penalty. Can I issue us a warning that will save us, I think, a lot of heartache? Don't forget the Lord. Don't forget to be thankful for who He is. Don't forget to be thankful for what He's done. Don't forget that He writes the rules. Don't forget that He defines the law of gravity. He defines the law of gravity, right? What is it? I think it's 30, is it 32, any engineers? 32 feet per second? Right? Squared? Yeah. 32 feet per second squared. Right? Not 31, not 33. You will fall at a specific pace. At a specific speed. Right? And speed gets, speed gets worse with time because it's an acceleration. Yep. I, I found one. Right? There's no tweaking that law of nature. There's no tweaking the law of gravity. Period. And there's no tweaking the laws of God. And so, he says, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back. There's a thing that we do, that we do, that we do, that we think, uh, I don't need God for this situation. As a matter of fact, I think I know what he would say to this situation. So I think I'm just going to... do my own thing. Can I tell you? That might not lead you to harlotry, right? But that was their starting point. 
That was their starting point. Do we know that it wouldn't lead us into something ble- some, someplace ugly and dark? No. The Lord, verse 36. And then verse 36 to 49 is really just a summary statement, so we'll read through these verses quickly, lest you were concerned and notice the clock. Oh, and ask for a show of hands. Verse 36, The Lord also said to me, Son of man, will you judge Aholah and Aholabah? Then declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons whom they, have be, whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. Moreover, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For, they had, for after they had slain their children for their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And indeed, thus they have done in the midst of my house. And so, basically... You know, God moves now from the metaphor to the pronouncement of judgment. Okay, will you judge Ahola and Aholabah? Then tell them this is what they have done. So now we're going from metaphor to uh, personal exhortation of these people, right? God moves from the, from the metaphor. And he says their crime is that they were adulterous. And again, keep in mind, is Christianity a relationship with God or is it a religious system? It's a relationship with God. It's a relationship with God. And of all the human relationships on earth, perhaps the, the well, the, the example that God uses, let's just put it that way, the, the example God uses to compare human relationships with His relationship with us is that of marriage, right? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, that, that carries forth. In the New Testament, we see in Ephesians, right, that we are the bride of Christ. He's the groom. We're the bride. And We can imagine God being the perfect, the perfect spouse, the perfect husband, we being the bride, and we still choosing to commit adultery to him. What would that do to him? You know, God has emotions. God has emotions. And our sin breaks the heart of God. Simple as that. And so the you know, as, as difficult and as graphic as these, as these verses are to read, God wants us to know, it's like I'm experiencing adultery. I'm experiencing the consequences of your adultery. And that's painful to God. So notice this, the crime is adultery and murder and idolatry. And the idolatry had become so normal to these people, one of their idols was Molech, to whom they sacrificed their children. So get this, we're talking about harlotry, we're talking about sacrificing your children. This is ugly. But it became so normal, and let me just tell you, say this, this can become, this is part of human nature too. Their sin became so normal that they could sacrifice their children and then in the same day go to the temple and worship Yahweh God, the God of the Jewish people. And think nothing of it. What does he say here? After they'd slain their children for their idols, on the same day, they came into my sanctuary to profane it. Like, they're going to worship me. After they just got done sacrificing their children. Right? Is that crazy? That's crazy. Are we capable of craziness? Yes, we're capable of craziness. We need protection of the, of the, of the Lord. 
We need the, the principles of His Word. We need the power of His Holy Spirit. We need Him to keep us out of trouble because we're too thick-headed to keep ourselves out of trouble. Verse 40. Furthermore, you sent for men to come from afar to whom a messenger was sent. And, they, and there they came. And you washed yourself for them, painted your eyes, adorned yourselves with ornaments, kind of like a harlot. You sat on a stately couch with a table prepared before it on which you'd set my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and Sabians were brought from the wilderness with men of the common sort who put bracelets on their wrists and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said concerning her who had grown old in, in adulteries, will they commit harlotry with her now and she with them? Yet they went into her as men go into a woman who plays the harlot. Thus they went to Ahola and Aholabah, the lewd women, but righteous men will judge them after the manner of adulteresses. And after the manner of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. So God reminds them that the metaphor of a holabah is all about them. For thus says the Lord God, bring up an assembly against them, give them up to trouble and plunder. The assembly shall stone them with stones and execute them with their swords. They shall slay their sons and their daughters and burn their houses with fire. Thus I will cause lewdness to cease from the land that all women may be taught not to practice their, your lewdness. They shall repay you for your lewdness, and you shall pay for your idolatrous sins. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. So God will bring execution, the lewdness will stop, and then they shall know that he is God. You know, one day, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, every knee shall bow. Every single knee that somehow has ever existed, every human knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then you shall know, he says, that I am the Lord. Sometimes that comes after judgment. But they will know. Everyone will know. So, God is all about having a relationship with his children. He's not interested in, he, he does not desire to bring us harm. He does not desire to bring us destruction. He does not desire to bring us punishment. He would like for us to avoid that. However, he is just and he does adhere to his principles of sowing and reaping that's just like the law of gravity. And so when we stray, he wants to bring us back. He wants to warn us. He wants to have fellowship with us. He wants us to appreciate him. He wants us to not forget him. He wants us to not cast him behind our back. And he wants us to enjoy the fruit of that kind of relationship. So as we walk with him, just know that walking with him according to his word, by the power of his Holy Spirit, guess what? It brings blessing. Yeah. And guess what? Generally, it probably involves less baggage with one another. Yeah. And it's no guarantee of, you know, we're not exempt from challenge, right? We all go through challenge. We all go through very difficult challenge. I acknowledge that. But when God is with us on that, it's a whole different ballgame. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for warning us. Lord, even though warnings are very difficult sometimes to hear, you're faithful to do that. And Lord, when we do sin, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
not just from that, but from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we're thankful that you give us all we need to follow you. You give us all of the tools we need. You give us all the warning we need. Lord, help us to make those sometimes difficult choices to follow you biblically, to follow you honorably, to not put you behind our back, to not forget you, to not forget your word. And even when it seems difficult, Lord, help us to walk by the power of your Holy Spirit. The same power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us as Christians today. And so, Lord, help us to acknowledge that and help us to rely on you and to seek you for the strength to make those sometimes difficult decisions that we can enjoy watching you work in our lives and experiencing your goodness and help our lives to bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.